Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, I am so excited. We have the original grandfather, the original gangster of paleo-ancestral primal health. That's Lauren Cordain. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Diet and much more, including The Paleo Answer, The Paleo Diet for Athletes. He's been around for a while and was one of the first authors and researchers to really jump on this train. And we're just so honored to have you on the show today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Al. I appreciate the kind words. Your research emphasis over the past three decades has solely been focused on evolutionary and anthropological basis for diet and health, and thus was born the paleo diet. Um, You know, I, I guess in this world, we get so attached to these food lists, we know what they are, we can look at an ancestral food list, but I like to get back to the basics, which is, I guess let's start off with, you know, People are always like, well, what do Paleolithic people have to do with us, right? I mean, that was so long ago. Could we talk a little bit about the DNA evidence and, and our evolution a little bit? Sure. Um, I When we spoke earlier, you had mentioned that uh, you had seen the C.J. Hunt uh, search for the in search of the perfect human diet. And I, I did a little clip on me, and that was years ago, but... Uh, I think it's still relevant in this day and age. And um, what we did is CJ took CJ, he came to Fort Collins and uh, we went out to a local high school football field and he took his camera and he panned from one end of the football field to another. And as we all recognize that a football field has a hundred yard length. And so uh, what I did with him, and I thought that it was kind of interesting, was to take that 100-yard length and uh, show exactly how long um, the 100-yard length represented in evolutionary terms. And yeah, that's it. But for the people that aren't aware, the Perfect Human Diet is probably the one and only original paleo documentary or ancestral documentary. And if it's, only, it's 10 years old, but it all still holds up. So check that out. It's one of my favorite films. Yeah. And so I just briefly to, to kind of start this uh, interview off is what we did is we started on the zero yard line and we said that that was the first appearance of uh, one of our ancestral species known as Homo erectus. And I use that species because Homo erectus from the neck down looked exactly like we do today. So by 1.9 million years ago, uh, we had evolved to the point where at least from the neck down, we were identical to what we are. And uh, so Homo erectus appeared in Africa 1.9 million years ago. And uh, by... 1.8 million years ago, they had emigrated to uh, the Republic of Georgia in Europe and Asia. So that first step of leaving Africa and going to Georgia represents 5.3 yards. So in other words, if you grab the football on the zero yard line, you move forward five yards, you go from the first appearance of Homo erectus to Homo erectus in Georgia. Then if we fast forward to 700,000 years ago, Homo erectus made it into China. And uh, 700,000 years ago, although it seems historically remote, uh, represents 63 yards. So take that football and go from yard zero and move 63 yards forward. Then we can go 500,000 years ago to Boxgrove. And in Boxgrove, there's another species of Homo, Homo heidelbergensis, which is a common ancestor to both Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis. And one thing that's uh, unusual about the finding of Boxgrove, Boxgrove was found in England uh, near the coast, and there was uh, multiple large animals that were butchered, rhinoceroses and and what have you. So the idea here is uh, that we were eating meat and animal food almost exclusively. And then from uh, Boxgrove, we can go 430,000 years ago 
to Europe, and that's when the Neanderthals entered Europe, and uh, that represents uh, 77 yards. So think about it. We're already almost uh, three-quarters of the way down the football field, and we still haven't seen modern humans. 400,000 years ago, there's a site in Germany called Schinnigen, and in Schinnigen, they discovered um, a number of wooden spears and uh, also butchered horse parts. And so those wooden spears then uh, were used to uh, kill and hunt uh, animals from the Paleolithic. So let's fast forward now to 195,000 years ago, and that's when the first uh, member of our genus, um, Homo sapiens, appeared in the fossil record. 195,000 years ago, that takes us to the 90-yard line. So now we've almost traversed the entire football field, and our species first appeared. And these are from fossils found in Africa, the so-called Omo fossils. Um, 70,000 years ago, uh, which now takes us to 96 yards, so we're literally four yards from the end of the football field, that's when our species, Homo sapiens, uh, the rest of the planet. 45,000 years ago, Homo sapiens reach Europe. That takes us to the two and a half yard line. 10,000 years ago was the agricultural revolution. And the agricultural revolution uh, takes us to the 99 and a half yard line. So we're a half yard from a touchdown. We've already traversed 99 yards. And that is a very important point in human nutritional uh, evolution, because prior to that time, the only foods that our species ate were wild plant and animal foods. Prior to the agricultural revolution, we didn't eat cereal grains and we didn't consume dairy products. If we fast forward from the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution, now we're at 99.99% of the entire football field. And that is the time when processed foods um, were just making an inkling into our diet. The beginnings of processed foods uh, starting about 120 years ago. And once again, we're at the last tenth of the last inch of the entire football field. So my point is, is that our genetic makeup uh, has been conditioned by 99% has been conditioned by wild plant and animal foods. And so we need to use that model as a template for what we consume in our modern diet. I love that you took us through that. It just goes to show you that the agricultural revolution really took us down a, a wrong turn <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit. Um, yeah, so they no dairy, no grains, didn't salt their food. Honey was the only thing that would be refined sugar than we would find occasionally. Let's talk a little bit about grains. It's it's such, um, gosh, people even who try to eliminate most grains still holding on to the oatmeal, Lauren. It's like people sometimes, <laughs> they go, well, well, I'm going to keep the oatmeal. Um, let's talk a little bit about grains and the not just the antagonistic nature of it uh, preventing mineral absorption, et cetera, but also the fact that it was really a starvation food for our ancestors, Correct. Right, and I think one of the points that I, I try to bring out before we talk about nutrients, you know, obviously there's numerous anti-nutrients that should be considered. Many people, it doesn't seem to affect them. But uh, the question comes up is that they're not very nutritionally dense foods. So if you look at the um, 13 nutrients most lacking in the Western diets, vitamins and minerals, uh, cereal grains are right close to the bottom of the stack. And so if you're trying to increase the nutritional density of your diet, uh, why would you consume a food that is a very poor nutritional food, particularly if you eat refined grains, they're even worse. I'm, I'm wondering about, um, you, you talk about this concept, I mean, it's not a concept really, but these modern low-carb diets, sometimes people jump on this unlimited consumption of fatty, salty, processed meats and things like that versus going for the more ancestral, leaner, wild meats. And that it's really about 
good fats and bad fats, right? And so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, saturated fat and stearic acid and and the difference between certain meats and foods we eat and how that relates? Um, I, I certainly can, we can go down that road if you would like. I think it's uh, more important in, in this day and age and more relevant to talk a little bit about keto diets because um, keto diets, people that consume keto diets, uh, eat a lot of bacon and a lot of other processed fatty meats that contain salt in them. But more importantly, uh, I think that uh, many people in the nutritional community have not considered uh, the nutrient content of keto diets. And so uh, at my website, I I wrote a blog on that, a fairly extensive blog. And uh, I just want to take five or 10 minutes and and go over the nutritional shortcomings of keto diets. Absolutely. So one of the problems is, uh, by definition, a keto Genic diets limit carbohydrate to about 50 grams per day, some maybe a little bit higher. And uh, the, the problem with, uh, uh, well, before we talk about the problem, let's talk about the benefits. So the benefits of keto diets, they help to promote, they're effective at promoting weight loss, improving glucose and insulin metabolism, reducing cardiovascular disease. Perhaps they're helpful in cancer and uh, in, in other uh, serious health-threatening uh, problems. But one of the uh, uh, elements, the nutritional elements about keto diets that is rarely, if ever, considered is that if you look at the t- typical macronutrient breakdown, well, it's considered, is it's if you're going to take your carbohydrate down to 50 grams or less, then basically you got to eat a lot of fat. And so most macronutrient values uh, for keto diets are 65 to 75% fat, 15 to 25% protein, and 5 to 10% carbohydrates. Those are pretty common values. And the problem is, is that when you eat that much fat, most people don't realize it, but fat is devoid of potassium, calcium, magnesium, and vitamin C. And so I have a, a little table and I, I don't, I can't, since this is only a, an audio interview, I can't really, um, you know, show you that table. But uh, what I've done is I've taken um, common fats that are present in keto diets like butter, bacon grease, beef tallow, chicken fat, fish oil or fish fat, goose fat, lard, olive oil, coconut oil, walnut oil, avocado oil, flaxseed oil, and canola oil. And out of all of that list, there's only two of them that aren't devoid of potassium, calcium, magnesium, folate, and vitamin C. So I've set the stage is that when you eat that much fat devoid of potassium, calcium, magnesium, folate, and vitamin C, it's very, very difficult to obtain the recommended daily requirements for those minerals and, and vitamins. And so what we, our group has done is I, I use computerized dietary analysis. And the program that I use um, is <clears throat> breaks all of the, the nutrients down so that you can input uh, any uh, menu plan that you may have into it. And so various uh, keto diets from the popular press that show me what a two-week or a four-week uh, keto plan breaks down to. And so when I do this, I can tell you that they do come out deficient in those five elements. And let me just give you a little example here. Um, so for a two-week uh it is deficient in potassium. It only contained uh, 2,087 milligrams of potassium for an average of seven days, and that's versus the recommended of 4,700 milligrams of potassium per day. So you can see that it's uh, less than half of the potassium that you're getting. 
Um, yeah, and it does seem, and you know, this is something we try to push, and I know Mark does with the keto reset as well, is that people tend to go keto, and again, they're going towards these super fatty processed meats often, sometimes including dairy, but even if they're not, they're not really putting an emphasis on getting some great greens. And it's really important, this alkalining factor to our diet. Um, and you were even, even talking about calcium, you were saying that, look, if you eat more alkaline food, you're going to retain more calcium, right? It's, it's, you know, diets that are highly acidic will lose more calcium as well. So it's an important balance and people just tend to, you know, get their appetite suppressed and won't eat a vegetable. And then where are they four weeks from there? <laughs> you know, a little bit nutrient deficient probably. Well, you know, that, that's in the, in the best of all worlds. But what I'm saying is that the people that are selling uh, popular keto books, these, these are their recipes. I didn't invent these. We just put their recipes and their meal plans into it. Yep. And I tell you, you have to eat a hell of a lot of spinach to get anywhere near the amount of potassium or calcium that you need. Um, the other problem is, is that there's a flip side of potassium. Potassium and sodium work together. Okay. So, uh, with, Keto diets, not only are they deficient in potassium, uh, our analysis shows that they're very high in sodium. So when you have low potassium and high sodium, that's not a good thing for your bones and for other parts of your body. So the average of seven days that were published in a popular book uh, showed that uh, sodium levels were 4,514 milligrams per for an seven days. The recommended is 2,300 per day. So why is that? Why, why is salt so high in keto diets? Well, um, to meet the calcium requirements, many keto diets advocate the high consumption of cheese. And cheese is very high in salt. I did an analysis of 53 varieties of cheese and they average 450 milligrams per 100 grams. Salted butter, 114 milligrams of sodium per 100 grams. Many of these diets also uh, advocate the consumption of ad libitum uh, sea salt, which is a darling of many paleo diet writers, or just plain salt as well. So what happens is the potassium to sodium ratio ends up being less than one. And over a seven-day average, it came out to be 0 0.47. And if you look at our ancestral diets, the sodium, uh, the potassium to sodium ratio is greater than five. So we have a, a potassium to sodium ratio that's 10 times lower than what we see in our ancestral diet. Um, and, you know, then we can go on and I, I don't want to, you know, take too much of your time on this, but uh, I just want to finish is um, the... These uh, um, keto diets, uh, because they limit carbohydrate to 50 grams a day or more, you got to eat a lot of fat and you also have to eat a lot of protein. So the average protein intake for a uh, seven-day average was 112 grams per day. And combined with the low potassium this causes a metabolic acidosis. There's a concept called potential renal acid load, PRAL. It's also called net endogenous acid production, NEAP. And you can easily calculate these values. And so we did that. We calculated the PRAL values and the NEAP values for a keto diet. And there's absolutely no doubt that it produces a metabolic acidosis. So the question comes up is what are the consequences of metabolic acidosis? And there's short-term consequences, less than a year, medium consequences, say three to five years, and then long-term consequences, a lifetime. And um, the short-term consequences of keto diets are they cause urinary calcium loss or calciuresis. And that's unquestionable. If you look at randomized controlled trials, they all cause uh, increased calciuresis. However, in the short term, it appears that healthy young people um, increase the gut calcium absorption, so they come into net calcium balance in the short term. 
over a lifetime, things aren't quite so rosy. And uh, my uh, colleague, my deceased colleague, Stefan Lindeberg, did an analysis of Inuit uh, people and bone health and osteoporosis. And he was able to show that across the board, over the course of a lifetime, Inuit people who are forced to eat a keto diet, uh, they ended up with much lower bone mineral densities as measured by DEXA and some more primitive radiographic techniques that were available uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So uh, the other item is the keto diets cause magnesium deficiency. And for our running seven-day average, we see 335 grams of magnesium versus the recommended of 400. Um, and th the other problem is calcium or magnesium is just like sodium and potassium. Magnesium operates together with calcium. And so uh, it's very important, the calcium to magnesium interaction. Um, and when we look at that, uh, the recommended calcium to magnesium interaction uh, or ratio should be right around two, two and a half or so. Values greater than 2.8 have been shown to be detrimental to health. And so the typical paleo diet that I'm, or keto diet that I'm talking about here averaged a calcium to magnesium ratio of 5.2, which is horrible. So it's almost twice the value that's recommended and so all of these mineral deficiencies over the course of a lifetime uh, tend to promote cardiovascular disease, cancers, and other health problems. So I, I, my, my point is here is that I don't have any problems with people going on a, a keto diet temporarily to kickstart you know, weight loss or help out with some health problem. But... Uh, uh, they really need to consider uh, the nutritional consequences of uh, consuming uh, diets that are so low in carbohydrate. Why restrict fruits and vegetables? Fruits and vegetables are very, very healthy for us. Well, right. And I think as well, there's there's different levels of keto. Um, and like you said, the people that are doing a lot of cheese or dairy, they're throwing something in the mix that other people who might do a more paleo version of it, more alkalining version of it. We have one author who came out and is very much like, hey, green keto. If you're going to do keto, we need to get the greens in there. Let's not forget about that, of course. Sure. Um, you know, let's talk about high protein and stuff. So, I, you know, I know in your book, you're like lean protein is a star of the show and, and you talk about how it really relates to lowering homocysteine. I am someone who at one point had elevated homocysteine. That is not a good thing. Um, but I'd love you to talk about that and also touch on why high-protein diets don't damage your kidneys. That's often an objection by a lot of people when you're eating a high-protein diet. So if you could address uh, those two in any way you'd like, that'd be great. Sure. The high-protein and the kidney damage, uh, there's a paper that was came out about 2000. They actually measured just that, and what they found is that in people with marginal kidney function, um, high-protein diets seem to uh, actually improve th their function. I don't have that paper on the top of my head, um, but uh, that, that's, a, that's a myth, and uh, that myth came about in the early 80s um, from a famous nephrologist who published paper in New England Medicine, and uh, all subsequent studies uh, don't really seem to uh, support that issue. If, you, if the kidneys are already then high protein, a high-protein diet doesn't seem to be a good idea. But uh, for normal, healthy, functioning kidneys, uh, that, that doesn't uh, seem to matter. In terms of uh, protein, we were the first people to point out in the scientific literature uh, in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that there actually is a protein ceiling, believe it or not. And w we calculated what it was, and um, we were the first people to show those numbers. And so it turns out that, uh, you know, for a healthy, normal person, the average protein ceiling is about 35 to 40% of energy. Um, so once beyond that, uh, a high protein diet 
produces metabolic uh, byproducts um, that aren't easily eliminated, and they uh, cause a, a condition uh, called rabbit starvation. That's what the early explorers uh, referred to it as. And so we uh, we went through the, the pathways in the biochemistry, and I believe that paper is available on my website as a free download. It was the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, 2002. Okay. We will put a link to that in the show notes uh, for the end of, uh, end of the show if people want to access that. You know, you mentioned the study in your book about the people in Alaska who are like frozen in ice and then they looked at their arteries, et cetera, because they were eating mostly, you know, zero carbs pretty much and whale blubber and all this uh, extra fat. I I love this um, foray from paleo, your, your book, The Paleo Answer, about uh, lessons from the outback with the aboriginals. Can you tell us about that? That is such a great example of what happens when we leave our DNA blueprint and, and move into sort of, you know, modern times. Right. Well, that study was actually done by Karen O'Day um, from Australia. And it was a series of studies. And the the first study that she did is she took a, a group of Westernized aboriginals and um, you know, I reveal all the details in my book and uh she took them to the outback and they still had the ability and the knowledge to live off the land. And, um, so they, they did a series of clinical measurements, blood glucose, insulin, body fat, and all the rest of the measurements that they could do. And what they found is that after, I believe it was either seven or eight weeks, um, everything normalized, and then I think there may have been a follow-up study is what happened to them when they got back into the eating white bread and, and what have you, and everything went back to the way that it was. So that, that is a real fascinating study. Um, I don't know that it could be done today because that study was done in the early 80s, is that there were still people that knew how to live off the land from uh, their endogenous culture. And I don't think that the people in Australia now, even native Aborigines, uh, very few of them could probably uh, do that in this day and age. I, um, there, there's another issue here that, uh, that might be relevant to this um, interview. And I, I thought it was uh, talking about the popular paleo diet movement. And, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was involved in the paleo diet movement uh, from literally the, I won't say the very beginning, but I was involved in it early on when very few folks were involved. And if we look at the origins of the whole paleo diet concept, um, many people are unaware that the origins of the paleo diet movement began in the peer review scientific literature. It didn't begin in cookbooks or popular books. It began in the peer review scientific literature. And the first paper in really the modern era that uh, started the whole thing was my colleague Boyd Eaton's first publication in 1985 in the New England Journal of Medicine. So that really kicked everything off. And over the the succeeding years, the next 15 to 20 years, other scientists, nutritionists, academicians, and physicians, myself included, uh, we defined the limits and the boundaries of contemporary paleo diets. In those days, uh, we we corresponded with each other through what was called a listserv. And so there might have been 15, 20, or 30 of us on these listserv, and uh, we we talked about all kinds of topics, and I believe one of those listers you can still download uh, the topics. And uh, you know, people that many of you may have heard of Boyd Eaton, Jenny Brand Miller, Stefan Lindeberg, uh, and others that have become notable in the paleo diet community. We had these ongoing conversations with one another about various aspects of the paleo diet movement. And a lot of uh, famous anthropologists that you folks may not have heard of were also involved in these discussions. 
And uh, I think there was really a lot of good that came out of this. And so this is where the the limits and the boundaries for what we considered to be the pa- contemporary paleo diet came from. And, uh, you know, things like not eating dairy products, well, that's a no-brainer because, you know, we hadn't domesticated animals. And so uh, milking a wild animal is impossible. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and very dangerous too, and so uh, the, the the same thing can be inland living hunter gatherers, except for um, you know uh, dry lake beds. There are very few uh, sources of salt inland, and basically. Uh, the inland uh, trace nutrient concentrations, you've got a lot of potassium that's found in all kinds of plants, but where the whole thing with the salt issue seemed to come about uh, defining that. But um, more importantly, um, you know, I, you know, having began with this in the, the late 90s, mid to late 90s, and moving into the early 2000s and publishing a number of papers myself, um, we kind of saw a disturbing trend that started in around 2006 and 2007 uh, with popular press writers and cookbook writers. And they seem to extend the boundaries of contemporary diets to all kinds of non-healthful foods uh, without any objective scientific evidence. It seems uh, that these folks were more interested in turning it into any uh, uh, kind of a, an idea that could commercially make money. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that because the more people that hear about the paleo diet concept, I think more people that can be helped, but still um, many of these uh, non-healthful foods at first, they just kind of seem to be benign. It's like, well, if you eat a little bit of milk and dairy, there's no problem there. If you put a little bit of salt in, no problem there. Refined vegetable oils without regard for fatty acid composition, don't worry about that. But one of the things that came out of all this was producing analogs of modern-day foods uh, that absolutely have non-paleo nutritional characteristics. So you can make a, a brownie out of nut flour and honey or molasses and, you know, throw in some vegetable oil. You can make cookies and candy and salad dressings and condiments and all kinds of things with mixtures that could have never been put together. And one of the problems is with this is, uh, once again, I think that many of these food manufacturers think that, well, these products are benign and there's not a, uh, you know, not a problem with them. But there is. There's a huge problem. And they produce non-paleo nutritional characteristics. And I think that's really what we're shooting for with contemporary paleo diets, is to try to have nutritional characteristics, modern-day diets, that mimic or emulate those that are found in the Stone Age. Obviously, we can't eat Stone Age foods, but we sure can put together modern uh, foods that have... um, paleo nutritional characteristics. But these analog foods that are now widespread, my son told me he went down to Costco and he can buy paleo pancakes and all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> and so so what they do is they, they put out a, a food that contains a high glycemic load. And there's nothing wrong with a high glycemic load if you only do it occasionally. But if the food now becomes part of the, the normal daily routine is to have these these analogs, you've got a high glycemic load. You have no regard for the omega to omega-3 ratio. Uh, it can be low in fiber. And as I mentioned earlier, they almost universally are high in potassium. They almost universally are high in calcium and low in magnesium. And they can be low in phytochemicals. Now, one of the problems with including dairy products in the whole mix, as I mentioned, dairy products, particularly cheeses, are high in sodium. But whether you have yogurt or milk or whatever your dairy product is, is 
and you can do this for anybody at home that has nutritional analysis software. You can do it. Is just throw up any dairy product you want and look at the calcium to magnesium ratio. It comes out about 20 to 1, 20 times as much calcium as magnesium. Well, that ends up being a huge problem for cardiovascular disease. And so, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, is that uh, an optimal healthful calcium to magnesium ratio is about two and a half, two, two and a half to one. And now we're 10 times higher than that. So, um, and, and with the consumption of salted processed meats, it just throws the, the sodium to potassium ratio further out. And uh. I, I think the reason that uh, is a little bit disconcerting to me as a scientist that was involved uh, with the origins of the contemporary paleo diet movement in whole communities is we thought these things out and the recommendations for the foods to eat, the modern foods to eat and which foods not to eat uh, were, were thought out. And our ideas are just have been ignored because paleo has gotten to be so big. Anybody with a loud horn can say anything they want. (laughs) (laughs) This is a loud horn right here in the show. So we're, (laughs) um, yeah, no, it's really fascinating. Were you the one that said or documented in one of your books that, you know, 65% of the human population has an issue with casein, which is in most dairy was that, I forget where that statistic came from, but I mean, dairy is such a, um, such an antagonistic. Oh, it's lactose. Okay. It's lactose. It's the sugar that's in milk that's the problem. And 65% of the planet uh, do not have the enzyme to break down uh, lactose. Yeah, I suggest everyone get rid of dairy for a month and see what happens and then reintroduce it because I guarantee you'll, you'll notice something possibly negative unless you're one of the few people that can really handle it well. Um, but I've noticed that over the years. I, you know, one of the things that you talk about that really resonates with me and my personal life and is, is ancestral eating patterns, the eating patterns of hunter-gatherers, you know, from Hawaiians or Alaskans. And it, it kind of does all gear towards like one main meal, you know, whether that's a late afternoon meal for the Hawaiians or an evening meal. Tell us a little bit about that and, and these patterns that we see throughout history. Yeah, we we did. I haven't done a comprehensive analysis on that. That was one of the projects before I retired. I wanted to get a graduate student on to try to get at. Obviously, we can't go and and see the the dietary patterns that uh, uh, our Stone Age or our pre-agricultural ancestors consume because they're not here anymore. Well, there's there's very few of them left. There's a few people in... uh, you know, Amazonia, and there's a couple and some islands off of India, but those people don't exist. So we, we've lost that information. So what we kind of have to do is go back to uh, the data that we do have. And um, so that's what we've done in, in some of our studies is we've looked at the, the data that was recorded, um, the ethnographic data, uh, the ethnology of, of populations. And so I've done a little bit of that, but again, it hasn't been comprehensive. And what we found is exactly as you say, well, not exactly, but very similar, is that typically um, in hunter-gatherer groups, uh, the men, I hate to be sexist, but the men went out and they did the hunting for the most part. Um, And the women, for the most part, did the gathering with the children and the older folks. And so they all went out over the course of a day, sometimes the, every other day or every third day, and they did the hunting and the gathering, and then they, they brought the, the food and the, the bounty back to the, the camp, and they shared it with the, the other folks. And so that typically turned into um, a larger meal towards the end of the day, um, but not always. So sometimes um, there was a slightly different pattern, and that pattern was basically munching throughout the day. So if there was enough food in camp, um, people stayed in camp and kind of tended to, you know, 
eat throughout the day. But uh, those are the two patterns that we seem to see. And uh, I think there's a, a lot of benefit to uh, eating only once a day or so. And, and, and today, today's you know vernacular, we call it periodic fasting. And so uh, there is um, a huge scientific literature to show that periodic fasting uh, resets the entire buzzer. It does everything that's good, <laughs> and it doesn't do a whole lot that's bad. And so, uh, you know, there was anecdotal evidence that came from the early part of this of the of the 20th century and the 19th century, where people would go in Europe. They would go to these these fasting spas, and they would you know, not eat for six days or eight days or whatever. And they claimed all of these benefits. And now we have objective randomized controlled trials that show precisely the benefits of uh, this dietary pattern of not eating every day. <laughs> you don't have to pay. Your food bill is pretty low. <laughs> What a, what a low overhead to have a fasting spa. <laughs> it sounds a little like a racket. I'm like, boy, I need to get into that game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy, that's a, that's a great game to be in. No, I mean, it's funny. And it just, it turns out that way too. When you go down the paleo ancestral health and you've been there a while and you're, you're kind of on it, it, people do notice that they wake up and they're not starving anymore and that they, huh, I don't eat breakfast anymore. Or it moves towards that. I mean, for me personally, like, gosh, uh, if I could have it my way, I'd have dinner at 3 p.m. every day. <laughs> it doesn't really work with other people's lives, Lauren, but I, I try to, uh, I try to do that. It just feels right to me to have sort of one main big meal. And, and, you know, I may have a little bite of something here or, you know, a, a nice green smoothie or something, but it, for the most part, my, you know, it's, it's once a day and it just does feel right. And it does seem like it would lend itself to that pattern of right hunting and gathering. And then at the end of the day, sitting down and enjoying some meal, um, at a campfire. What, um, you know, I know that you you talk about the specifics of the problems that can arise through vegetarian diets, like you know B twelve deficiency and some other things. What would you say though if someone was like, well, yeah, but okay, I can take those supplements. Where else do you you know? So then, what would be problematic in your terms with vegetarian diets? Well, you know, I, I devoted an entire chapter to uh, the problems with the vegetarian diet, and I think that was in my uh, book. Uh, paleo answer. So I, I realize that we're kind of running low on time here. So I, I would recommend uh, any of your readers showing that because it's just it's it's way too extensive to to get into. But um, sure, um, it, there's a, a mountain of information and. Uh, well, let's we'll do that, and so that's in the Paleo Answer, and also the Paleo Diet. Two incredible books, two of many books he's written. Let's um, in sort of wrapping up. I want to talk a little bit about your personal experience. So, I mean, everyone's different. Everyone's different uh, requirements for exercise, etc. What does a day in the life of you look like in terms of eating? You know, what 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 does that look like? Well, you know, I'm. Uh... Kind of an older guy these days. <laughs> I'm uh, 68, and so you know, as you as you age and as you go into old age, um, I I found that my appetite has decreased considerably from the time when even when I was 40 or 50. So I don't eat uh, nearly as much food as I used to, um, and I you know I, I try to exercise, but. Uh, I was a runner for years and years and years, and uh, I had a number of knee injuries that now prevent me from running, um, and actually skiing accidents too. <laughs> so, uh, but um, I, I would say that uh, one on, on a personal level, you ask about the uh, uh, meal frequency. I usually don't eat much. Uh, well, I don't eat a, a lunch at all unless I have to go out and socialize and have a lunch, you know, sure. noontime or something with people. But uh, I, I typically won't have lunch, and uh, uh, my big meal of the day is dinner usually, and it's usually early. My wife and I try to eat around five, and uh, I found that I sleep better when I eat earlier. Um, 
Do do and, you consume breakfast or anything in the morning time? Yeah, I do. I I, I like to have a couple of uh, poached eggs and uh, some vegetable juice. Um, I find that uh, I can handle vegetable juice without getting a a sugar buzz or a sugar hit off of that. So I, I like to juice spinach and carrots and celery. Make myself about four ounces of that and drink that down with uh, two poached eggs. That's my typical breakfast. Um, and so then you're not, yeah, then you're not really, that sets you up for the day. And then by the, you're kind of good until dinner. Yeah. Is that how it works? That, yeah, that's pretty much right. And what, what my wife and I do for dinner is we, we always have some sort of, uh, you know, main dish with fish or seafood or, grass-fed beef or um, grass-fed bison or elk or, uh, you know, and then a a huge salad and steamed veggies. And then for dessert, uh, I like to try to eat uh, berries, you know, blackberries, blueberries, whatever's in season. Well, actually, there's no such thing as a season anymore. You can get those all year round. Uh, But the low glycemic berry uh, fruits, yep. Yeah, and and I do take uh, some supplements. Uh, We didn't really have time to get into the concept of longevity, but uh, one of the points I wanted to make is that I'm working on my eighth and probably final book, and I'm about 30 or 40,000 words into it, and it will be a book on human longevity. And what I can tell your listeners is that if you look at the continuum of life on Earth, Life began roughly 3.8 billion, not million, 3.8 billion years ago. And some of the first life that uh, formed on Earth was anaerobic bacteria. And so they didn't have mitochondria. And so they, meaning that they couldn't do oxidative metabolism, they had to do anaerobic metabolism. And so the oxygen that they used were dribbled out very small in very small concentrations. But there was an event called the great oxygen event that occurred about 2.8 billion years ago. And prior to that event, um, there were bacteria that evolved from being prokaryotic to being eukaryotic, meaning that they had nucleuses and mitochondria. And so that meant that they could uh, metabolize glucose aerobically, and they produced a lot of oxygen. And oxygen, believe it or not, we think about it as being a very helpful uh, idea, and it is. But oxygen is also toxic, and oxygen produces reactive oxygen species. Um, And these reactive oxygen species interact with the bilipid membrane of all cells and they cause vast destruction when they do that. And so this is generally the the theory, the current theory of aging is uh, mitochondrial ROS production and the destruction it does to your cells over the course of a lifetime. But eukaryotes and higher animals got smart. They realized that instead of us being exterminated, let's let's invent a new process and let's call that process our genes. And so DNA then uh, within the nucleus was the element that became immortal. So through our DNA, all of us are immortal. Our bodies die, but our genes don't. Our genes move on. And so if you look at the continuum of life and you look at longevity, um, one of the factors that evolved early on was lipid-soluble antioxidants. And so in the very first life forms, they evolved these compounds that stuck with us. Evolution is very conservative. And so... Uh, these early compounds are still with us today. For instance, 
let's talk about melatonin. Melatonin, uh, you think about as controlling circadian rhythms and and sleep and what have you. That was the later function of melatonin. The very first function of melatonin uh, 3.8 billion years ago was as an antioxidant. So melatonin served initially as an antioxidant. And melatonin is a fat-soluble antioxidant. And in those early forms of life, they were immortal. And only later, once the oxygen, once the great oxygen event occurred, did cells, their their life form, die, but their, their genes stayed with them. And so throughout the evolution of life on Earth, melatonin has been with us from the get-go. And melatonin is just one lipid-soluble antioxidant. Why is it lipid-soluble? Because there's a bilipid membrane that formed. The very first forms of life had bilipid membranes. And in order for them to do their actions, they had to operate within the bilipid membrane. So that's why fat-soluble antioxidants uh, seem to be hugely important. And this is an area that the nutritional community has largely ignored. And let me give you an ex- a perfect Well, you know, it's interesting. I wanted to interject and say that there are, I've noticed, a lot of functional doctors, include the doctor on my book, who recommend a low-dose melatonin for these purposes, not just for sleep, for anti-cancer, antioxidant benefits. So it's interesting that you're bringing this up because there are some people that are starting to catch on to that a little bit in these, you know, rarer functional medicine worlds, the doctors that don't take insurance that you don't see every day, right? But but they're kind of caught on to that. And so it's funny that you brought up melatonin. It's 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 really being touted as, uh, as let, like you let said. Let me uh, give you one functional. final example, and then I know we've got to we got to cut it off here. No, that's all right. A final example um, are fat-soluble antioxidants called menaquinones. And if you're a nutritionist, you, you recognize the term menaquinones. Menaquinones are vitamin K2. And there are 10 forms of vitamin K2, MK4 through MK13. And unfortunately, the uh, vitamin K scientists have been very much deficient in examining what foods contain high concentrations of menaquinones. And in 2016, a paper was published uh, by the what the group at uh, John Johns Hopkins, I believe, or another one of those East Coast colleges. They published a, a paper showing that the highest concentrations of long-chain menaquinones occur in all things but fatty pork. So fatty pork has high concentrations of menaquinones. And uh, there is epidemiological evidence to suggest that eating high levels of pork may enhance longevity because of the the presence of menaquinones. So when you... Well, that's interesting. And here's the thing. I'm not a scientist, but that's interesting because cultures that are in like Melanesia, Papua New Guinea, I mean, the Polynesian cultures with low, or maybe not now, they've got McDonald's there, but you know what I mean? But prior to that, um, are studied as longevity examples and their primary source of animal protein, right, was was pork. Yeah, and we see the Japanese... uh, up until about a decade ago, the, their number one meat uh, was pork. Now it's been replaced by chicken. And so if you look at the, the longest lived people on the planet, they're referred to by gerontologists as supercentarians. And supercentarians are people that live to 110 and beyond. They're very rare in our society. As a matter of fact, there's been about 1,200 of them that have been documented ever. And uh, look at the country that has the most supercentarians, believe it or not, uh, per population is the United States. 
Now, this may be an artifact of having better records because we do a census every 10 years, but supercentarians have to be verified. So a census isn't just good enough data. You have to go in and interview them and, you know, find out for sure if they are indeed supercentarians. And in the United States, this is the, the final kicker is that, believe it or not, the highest number of supercentarians, you know what state it comes from? No. Iowa. Hmm. And wh okay. why would you say why would you say that might be given what I've told you? Well, I mean the farming there, but I always just think of Iowan corn. So no, they they they, the they, right. grow, they grow more hogs than any other state in the union. As a matter of fact, I think they grow 12 million hogs last year, or even more, and the next best state has three million. So what does it that mean? At least if you go back to 1900 in 1900, because if you're a supercentarian now, that means you were born in 1900 or slightly later. That means that uh, um, you, you were living in an era where you didn't have air transport. You had a little bit of rail transport. But if there was a lot of food in an area, and, it, and that meant it was cheap, you ate a lot of that food. And so if you were born in Iowa in 1900 or 1910, and you're still alive, you probably ate a lot of pork throughout your life. And pork well, you contains manaquinones. But, you know, that's just a small part of this whole story. And for your readers, uh, you know, they can... Uh, I am writing this book, and uh, I will finish the story and all the details that uh, talk about how lipid-soluble antioxidants are a good thing. Well, we will. I'm really looking forward to that book, and as well, you know, on that on that note of pork, I have heard a couple of stories where you see someone on the television. They have their 105, or they're celebrating their you know 105th birthday, and they always say, "Hey, what's your secret?" And two women have said, "I eat bacon every day." <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's maybe that's a little part of it. But um, thank you so much for coming on our show. All of the work that you've contributed to our industry and to our health. And again, anyone can. We'll put all of the links in the show notes to connect to Lauren's website and all of his books. Um, is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Uh, not really. I just want to thank you for a, a nice interview. You were prepared and uh, you understand the topic and that's uh, somewhat unusual in this day and age. So thank you, Al. Thank you so much for having us, uh, having, indulging us in this and we'll see everyone next week. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. It used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress, whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind. We're constantly triggering the fight-or-flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout, but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function, maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day. This stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage. So I like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used 
in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.